My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm excited to be sharing some scripture with you. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself, and so we open it up every week. We study it. We make it a central part of our gathering to read from and pay attention to God's Word. We're in a series in the last several chapters of 1 Corinthians that we're calling What's Wrong with Church? What's Wrong with Church? It was way back during the beginning of the pandemic when we started 1 Corinthians. We were in the first four chapters in that series we called True Unity because the main thing that's wrong with the church in Corinth is division and pride. And we learned back then that division and pride can hide the cross. When we as God's people divide up, we tend to tell the story with our division that we're saved by our tribe. We're saved by the group that we belong to. But when we're humble and we show love to one another, we're better at telling the story of Jesus. We're better at telling the story of Jesus is my only hope. So this week, as we continue this What's Wrong with the Church series, um, we're getting one of the cures for this division, and that's coming to the table of the Lord. Now, a lot of different language is, is used to describe this. I'm calling the sermon this morning, Come to the Table. But as Christians, we traditionally describe this as communion. This is a symbolic meal where we remember that Jesus' body and blood was broken and spilled for us. Some people call it the Eucharist. That comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. Um, so we've got communion, which kind of has the fellowship aspect, Eucharist, which has the Thanksgiving aspect, and then some people call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, that language is here in this text we're going to read today, the Lord's Supper. This is a way for 2,000 years that Christians have been telling the story that Jesus is our true food and our true drink. Now, we also want to acknowledge Christians have been divided on this, and there are a lot of different views. So what I want you to hear from me is, of course, I think I know the right way to think about this, right? And I'm going to try to make my case from Scripture, but we're okay if, if we disagree, right? Like, we can still gather around the central meaning of the table and say the central meaning is Jesus. We might, we might disagree on some of the details, okay? And that's kind of the unity I want to call us to. Let's celebrate Jesus. Let's point to Jesus. And then let's have some intramural debates where we, we try to talk through the other things that we might disagree about. Um, when I first knew that I was going to be a part of this church, Grace Bible Church, it was about 16 years ago. I worked for a church in Temple called Temple Bible Church. It was just a prayer and a dream in the mind of the leaders of that church. I was on staff there as the children and family pastor. Uh, the elders and the senior pastor had just, uh, I guess, hired me, you know, just appointed me as I'm, I'm going to be the leader of this new church. They're going to start in the Fort Hood area. We didn't have everything figured out yet. We were just getting started. We just knew God was calling us over there to start a work here in the Fort Hood area. Well, we randomly got a phone call from someone that heard about it. Uh, this person was a chaplain on Fort Hood. They wanted to sit down around the table, have a meal, and express Christian unity because we had in common a commitment to Jesus Christ and we had in common a commitment to the scriptures. This chaplain had gone to the same seminary as my senior pastor, so I think they kind of got wind of it through those circles. He invited us to come and sit down. And so myself, my senior pastor, when we both still lived in Temple back in those days, we made the drive out here. We came and sat down at the table of a chaplain's house in Harker Heights, Texas, you know, wandering around, getting lost in these weird neighborhoods we'd never been to before over here. 
We sat at the table and they prayed for us. They encouraged us, this chaplain and his wife. And we enjoyed real fellowship and real unity as we ate and drank together. And they just said, man, whatever we can do to help you reach people for Jesus in the Fort Hood area. It was so encouraging to us. That was 16 years ago. I'd never met these people before, but they've since then gotten really involved in the life of our church. It was Oscar and Kathy Arocco. Um, they helped us get started. Many other meetings like that. If y'all don't know, Oscar's been an elder and taught Sunday school and led small groups. Uh, his wife, Kathy, is currently more famous at the church. She's our ministry director to women here at Grace Bible Church. And they're just fantastic partners in ministry. But it started with unity around their table. Other pastors invited us to sit down around the table and and they helped us, they encouraged us, they gave us connections, they helped us to get started. And I just think that's a beautiful picture of something we all engage in in normal human life. We have family dinners. We have dinners with our relatives at, at festival times, holidays. We have dinners and lunches with friends, with coworkers. And, and as we do that, we're expressing this normal human unity. And, and that is an essential part of what we're being called to when we share in the Lord's Supper, when we come to the communion table. We're saying we have in common, we belong to the same family because Jesus has adopted us by his blood. And because of that, we're gonna operate as if we're on the same team. We're gonna work together. So I'm gonna read the text and we're gonna be reading in... 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to study all of verses 17 through 34 today, but I'm going to start with reading just a few verses because in just a few verses, Paul sets up the problem, and then the rest of it, he'll give us the solution, okay? So we'll start with the problem. The Corinthians were struggling and showing their divisions again. Same theme he talked about. I encourage you to go back and read chapters 1 through 4, divisions, pride, tribalism, same kind of issues we struggle with today. And Paul is correcting them. Some hard language here, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Hard words of correction. Um, As we hear these words, uh, we want to pray that the Spirit would convict us. Are, are, Are we doing this? Are we sharing in the same sin? And then, Lord, what's the answer? And we believe ultimately the answer is in the Word. The answer is Jesus. Uh, but we want to pray and ask His Spirit to help us. So, so let me pray for us and ask that God's Spirit will help us to hear His Word. God, we thank You that You meet with us. Um, we pray that You would open our ears, our hearts, our minds. Help us to see You. Help us to delight in You. We thank You that You've come for us in Jesus. We thank You that You've given us your word, your scriptures. Help us to hear you, to learn from you. Help us to be changed by you. And Lord, help us to come to your table because you've delighted in us first. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the big problem is division. Um, They're kind of like pushing each other out of the way. We don't have a full reconstruction historically, but we can figure some things out just based on what we know from history and archeology. span They often would meet 
the churches in the large homes of the wealthy. So there'd be a wealthy benefactor or sponsor of a church. Uh, They didn't have buildings like we do today. Often they would have someone's house and it would be a big house, right? And so sometimes, especially in Corinth, we can piece this together from all the criticisms that Paul makes in the entire letter. There seems to be this distinction where the rich people thought that they were spiritually superior to the poor people. That would never happen today, would it? And so what's happening is they're coming together and they're having a big meal in the fancy house of the rich person. And then they're having communion kind of on top of that big meal, almost like we would talk about like a a fellowship supper on a Sunday night or a big picnic. And we combine that with the Lord's Supper, with communion. They're they're putting those things together in the early church. And Paul's saying that this is getting out of hand because because some of you are coming and you're eating too much, you're gorging yourself, some of you are getting, writ, uh, getting drunk, you're, you're kind of like uh, just kind of making a scene of the money that you have, you're showing off that you have more than the other people, and then you've got these other people that aren't eating anything. And again, we don't know all the details, but it's clear that they're not loving each other. They're not displaying oneness in the way that they're doing this. He's saying, this is not good. This isn't even the Lord's Supper, right? It's not pointing to the Lord. It's pointing to self. So again, go back and read the cross-references in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Paul has very parallel arguments there where he's saying, when you're pointing people to yourself, you're not pointing them to Jesus. And that's the same issue with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper should be about the Lord. It should be an exercise for us to, to worship Jesus, for us to praise him, to delight in him. And that's what Paul is correcting here in Corinth. So three ways that we should celebrate Jesus as we come to the table. So this is something Christians have been doing for 2,000 years, as I said. Christians do it in many different ways. But here are three kind of conceptual frameworks that that Paul's gonna challenge us to come towards as as he works out the answer here, okay? Number one is come to the covenant. The covenant, come to covenant. What is covenant? We're gonna have to look at that. That's an ancient Near Eastern form of relationship and binding uh, people to one another that we don't fully understand. It's a culturally distant thing. We have to look at that. That's the background for all of this. We're just going to kind of pull out a couple of keywords and look at that background in the Old Testament. And then secondly, come to Jesus. If you miss everything else, I say today, if you're falling asleep, wake back up for point two, come to Jesus, okay? That's the important point. And then number three, come to family. It's a family table. As we come to Jesus, the, then there's going to be this trickle-down unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Come to family. So come to covenant, come to Jesus, come to family. First point, come to covenant. It's a background point, as I said. I'm really just keying on verse 23 and 25. So just looking at a couple of key words, I just kind of want to zero in and say, okay, we're not getting this because we're modern people. We're not getting this because most of us don't read our Old Testament very well. So let's look at verse 25. He says, the new covenant in my blood. So what's covenant? Let's define covenant. It's an agreement between two parties. It's like a contract, but really much deeper than that. It's more of like a contract with kind of life and death consequences. The closest thing to covenant in our culture that we're familiar with would be a marriage covenant. It's an agreement where we say, till death do we part. We solemnize that, right? That's a verb we like to use in theology. We make it solemn. We make it serious, it's hardcore. It's a big deal. We're swearing in front of each other. We're promising things. We've got rings. We've got ceremonies. It's a big deal. So that's the closest thing we have in our culture, but it was even a bigger deal in their culture and more familiar to them. They would sacrifice animals. Most of you probably don't sacrifice animals when you got married. Anybody here sacrifice an animal during your marriage? Okay. I, I, thought, I thought that didn't happen very often. 
Um, but in the ancient Near East, Near East, they would sacrifice animals, right? So the general way a covenant would take place uh, is they would kill an animal and they'd basically say, may I die the way this animal did if I don't fulfill the covenant, if I don't fulfill the agreement. That's, that's the basic understanding of it. A common way to do that, to sacrifice the animal and make this blood oath, would be to actually split the animals in half and then walk through their blood. Sounds disgusting, doesn't it? So we're way too cool for that now. But they would do this. And in Genesis 15, we have this kind of covenant taking place between God and Abraham. Abraham's like, God, you said you were going to give me descendants and I was going to bless the whole world, but I don't have any descendants. What's going on? How do I know I can trust you? God says, I'm going to come down into your world. I'm going to enter into the way that humans relate to each other. And I'm going to make a covenant with you. It's this beautiful thing. So this common way that humans related and made promises, God says, I'm going to do that. God is showing this pattern that's played out again and again, where he's willing to enter our world and speak our language, come down to our level. So God says, all right, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Abraham, you know the drill. Got to get the animals. You got to cut them. You got to kill them, divide them up. Abraham does that. And then here's the really weird thing. Instead of Abraham and Yahweh walking through the blood together, that's the normal covenant. What happens? God knocks Abraham out. He anesthetizes him. He puts him in a deep sleep. And Abraham's over on the side where the presence of God manifested as this fire, as the smoke passes through the blood of the animals. It's like God is saying, I'm going to keep both sides of this covenant. May the blood come upon me, God is saying, if I don't fulfill my promise to you, Abraham. And then he's also saying, which we understand much better on this side of Jesus, he's also saying, may it come upon me, may I be slaughtered. May my blood be spilled. The God of the universe is saying his blood will be spilled if Abraham doesn't fulfill his side of the covenant. If Abraham's descendants don't fulfill their side of the covenant. If we don't fulfill the covenant, God says his blood will be spilled. And that beautifully foreshadows what God did for us on the cross. That's the concept of covenant. Now, it gets played out a million more times in Scripture, and I want to encourage you, part of my application will be, actually read your Old Testament, right? Like, look it up, look up these words, read these stories. But let me look in another key little phrase here, verse 23. Verse 23, it says, when this happened, right? When did communion start? When did this ceremony get uh, begun by Jesus? It, It came in the night he was betrayed. What was that night? Well, that night was during the Passover feast, So the Passover feast was a festival, a party, a memorial of a covenant that God had made with them during the Exodus. So God makes this covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis. And later on, we've got the Exodus, next book of the Bible. He saves his people out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt, and he makes another covenant with them. It's called the Passover, where they slaughter a lamb. And they say, here's the deal. If you slaughter the lamb and you put the blood of the lamb over your house, then your house will be saved. God was going to kill the firstborn of Egypt, but he said, you won't be killed. You won't die this judicious, rightful death that you deserve to die, just like the Egyptians do. You'll be saved. You'll be shown grace if you put put the blood of the sacrifice, this covenant agreement over your doorpost. And so every year, the Jews would celebrate this festival. They'd remember, we're the saved ones. We're the ones that are saved by the blood of the lamb. That's what the Jews would say every year during this festival of Passover. And that's when Jesus starts this. He comes into the Passover. He's like, yep. 
and there's more. That's really what he said. That's what we're doing with communion. We're like Passover plus, right? It's even better than we thought. That's what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I grabbed a picture here. Uh, It's just a cartoon representation of people. They would take blood of the sacrificed lamb. They'd paint the blood over the doorway of their house. And there's just a beautiful metaphor there, right? Like if if my life, if I've, if I've put the blood of Jesus over my life, then I will be saved. If I and my householder are trusting in the blood of the lamb, then I also will be saved. Then we will be the saved people, just like the Israelites were. So it's a beautiful picture in, in Exodus. They were saved out of their slavery in Egypt. And now today through Christ, we're saved out of our slavery, our bondage to sin and death through Jesus. I want to give you a couple more little covenant connections and we'll try to move on. There's just, there's so much that we could talk about. But, but I want us to think about how this is described in Matthew. So what we have here in 1 Corinthians, this is quotes from Luke. Um, Luke was Paul's dude, right? So they traveled together. Uh, Paul mentored Luke. So Luke is kind of like Paul's gospel in a sense, written by Luke. They had agreement. And so when Paul is quoting the gospels, he's going to quote Luke. We have multiple different gospel accounts, and they all give us different kind of slices, different, different emphases, Right? Um, We believe it's authoritative. All of this is God's word. And so the way we understand that is Jesus said a lot more than what we have here. And the different apostles gave us different little lenses to look at it through, right? So we're looking at Luke's view here, but Matthew says another little phrase. He says, the blood of the covenant, right? Which is almost the same words we have in 1 Corinthians and Luke, but it's slightly different. And the blood of the covenant echoes stuff that was said in the Old Testament in Zechariah and in Exodus. So in Exodus, it said, same language, this is the blood of the covenant. Exodus chapter 24, you can look that up. So kind of in line with the Passover stuff I was already talking about. Moses says to the people, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's echoing those exact same words from from uh, Exodus 24. In Zechariah 9.9, we have this prophecy of the king that would come. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That should sound familiar to you. If you have any kind of church background, you, you kind of remember there's like this thing about Jesus on a donkey, right? You remember that? Anybody remember when that happened? It happened at the beginning of this week. So the night he was betrayed was the end of the last week of Jesus's life. The beginning of that week, in church calendar terms, we call it Palm Sunday, because when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on the full of a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9, Matthew says, oh, by the way, I'm going to quote this exactly. This is what's happening, right? So Matthew quotes this and says, this is what's happening. Our king has come. He's on a donkey, just like Zechariah promised. The prophet said, someday the king would come. We've been waiting for this king to save us. The king is here. It's called the triumphal entry. He's coming into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the Passover week. Jesus starts communion at the end of the Passover week. Jesus goes to the cross at the end of the Passover week. At the beginning, he comes in as this king they've been waiting for on the donkey. And Zechariah says, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. Matthew quotes it like, this is it. Zechariah's being fulfilled here. Zechariah 9.9. And then at the end of the week, Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant. He's about to go to the cross. 
He's framing the cross for them. With the ritual, giving new meaning to Passover, Jesus is saying, this is a way for you to remember what's about to happen in a few hours when I die on the cross for your sins. I'm giving you a lens to look at it through the blood of the covenant. Zechariah 9 continues with this prophecy. This part is not quoted in Matthew, but Zechariah 9.9 said the king will come in on a donkey. And then Zechariah 9.11 says this, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. So Zechariah 9.9 is like, the king's gonna come on a donkey. Happens at the beginning of the Passover week. Zechariah 9.11 says, because of the blood of the covenant, I'll set the prisoners free. Jesus quotes that at the end of the Passover week. I just want you to get a little taste of these, these hyperlinks, these connections. There's a thousand more. The Old Testament is full of this kind of stuff. And when we're just trying to like rush through our Bible reading and get through our reading the Bible in a year, we're usually kind of dreading the Old Testament, right? You can be honest with me. I feel that way myself sometimes. And I, I've been studying the Bible for 30 years. The Old Testament is harder to read than the New Testament. And it's okay to just say it out loud. Let's all admit it. It's harder, but it's worth it. So I, I really want to encourage you to, to read it, to love it, to know it, to think of yourself like a, a miner, right? Like panning for gold. <laughs> You're digging for jewels. There's, there's so much there. It is scripture. The Old Testament is Jesus's Bible, right? When Jesus was walking around quoting scripture, he was quoting the Old Testament. This was his Bible. He loved it. We should love it too. So I just want to encourage you and myself to have a renewed sense of love for the Old Testament. It, it connects with Jesus. It connects with the New Testament. It all goes together. It's, it's one book with one author. We believe the entire Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So that's my number one uh, application for this point. We shouldn't be afraid of the Old Testament. We should read it. Keep going. Keep trying, right? It is hard. It's harder than the New Testament. We can admit that, but, but keep trying. Keep searching it. Keep studying it. Want to recommend chronological Bible reading plans? That's helpful. Um, our Bible is arranged like a library. So it's arranged where we've got poetry books together, prophecy books together, narrative books together. So that means it's not always in order. Some of them are in order, but not all of them are in chronological order. So a chronological Bible helps you put it in historical order. It just takes the same Bible and kind of cuts and pastes it into order. That's really helpful. You can get those on the, the Version apps on phones. If you like to listen to your Bible, you can do a chronological Bible reading plan. I do that a lot. Um, our Bible reading plan that we offer at the church, we've got paper copies in the hallway. That's mostly chronological. What we did was we took all the stories and put those in chronological order. And then we kind of interspersed the other wisdom books and stuff around that. So I think that's a really helpful way uh, to study these things. Another thing I would say is just, just do a word search on covenant, right? Like you can all do that. You've all got computers, you've all got phones, you, you've all got digital ways to search the Bible or you could even flip to the back of your Bible if you have a paper Bible and look up covenant. But just search the different covenants in the Old Testament and read those stories. It's really helpful to, to put it into framework. It's one of the central frameworks. You've got covenant, you've got kingdom, you've got exile right there. These different themes that the whole Bible is kind of structured around these themes. Covenant is one of the central ideas. And then a book that I would recommend is called Far As the Curse is Found. If you want to do some further study, Far As the Curse is Found by one of my old professors, Michael Williams. Uh, it's really, really helpful. And I could talk about this for three more hours because I'm a complete nerd. So if you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you more about it later. Second point is this, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Like I said, this is the big point, right? The other was kind of background to help you understand it all, but this is about Jesus. That's why he gave us communion table. 
That's why he invites us to the Eucharist, give thanks for who he is. That's why he invites us to the Lord's Supper. We're to come to Jesus. Verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Let me pause there for a second. These are the same words for tradition. Things that are received and delivered. Another way we describe that is a tradition. It's a procedure. It's like, hey, do it this way. And tradition is a 50-50 word in the Bible, okay? Sometimes it's really important. Paul's like, do what I told you to do, okay? (laughs) Obey his authority as an apostle. That's a good tradition. And then Jesus is like, you're practicing the traditions of men, but you're ignoring what God's telling you to do. Sometimes traditions are bad. So we need to recognize in the scheme of things, in the broader world, we tend to be a non-traditional church. What we try to do is, is say, let's practice the traditions that we're bound to biblically, and then we'll flex on the other ones. Knowing that even non-traditional churches, we all have traditions, right? Like we have, you know, whatever our non-traditional things are end up being traditions in and of themselves. So just want to caution you. I'm repenting in this area myself. Don't be a tradition hater. Just be a tradition discerner, right? Just, just sift the traditions and say, are, is this making much of Jesus and is it biblical? That, that's what we always have to be doing when we're wrestling through church traditions. And recognize that churches have this bad habit, pastors have this bad habit, Christians have a bad habit of always wanting your tradition to be the absolute right one. There are neutral traditions, right? Like some of the traditions are just how you do it. And it's okay, it's not a sin, and it's not the only way to do it. So a lot of things that fall in that category. We gotta be careful about that. Not saying everything that my church does is right. I mean, that kind of fills my ego. Thank you if you say that, but... But really, it's not a good idea, right? We want to obey Jesus, not, not the traditions. And so here, Paul's saying, this is a particular tradition that you must obey. I, I pass this on to you, and here it is. Verse 23, um, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you don't do anything else, what's the one thing you got to do when you come to the communion table? Remember Jesus. It's about Jesus. That's the one thing you got to do. Now, there are other things we can do as well. I think there are other beautiful things here to understand, but make sure you don't miss Jesus. Remember Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, this gets repeated. When things are repeated, that means they're important. This is a central command. Now, again, we get different language about the Last Supper from the different gospels. But interestingly enough, this one repeats, remember me. The other ones don't. This one does. But he's quoting Luke that also says, remember me, twice. So it's four times in the New Testament. This is repeated a lot in the New Testament. This is a quote of another New Testament book. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. So Luke, who Paul is quoting here, this is in Luke. uh, This is quoted out of Luke. Luke says, remember me, remember me. Paul quotes it like this is what was passed on to us. Remember him, remember him. And then Paul adds the editorial comment. Because what? As long as we're doing this thing, as long, as long as we're gathering and having church, that means Jesus hadn't come back yet. We're not in heaven. We're going we're gonna to be proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. 
So Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is the central thing that communion is to point us to and to remind us of. I grabbed a picture here of someone pointing at something and a dog completely ignoring the point. Has this ever happened to you? Do you have a dog and you point at something and the dog like just goes the other way and chases a squirrel? Or maybe the dog sniffs your finger and licks it. And you're like, no, that over there, right? Um, I don't mean to pick on dogs. I think dogs are wonderful. But sometimes they don't get it, right? They don't understand the thing you're, you're pointing towards. And I'm afraid that's what happens a lot of times in communion debates. We get all caught up in the debate of like, what's actually happening in communion? How does this work? And we divide up into our theological camps. And again, I could spend a couple of hours sharing all the different theological camps on communion and what they stand for and what they mean. But the point is Jesus. Communion is pointing us to Jesus. So that when we come to the table, whether you grew up Catholic or you grew up Anabaptist, Mennonite, whatever point of the spectrum you grew up, it's about Jesus. And that, that's what brings us together. That's what binds us in Christian unity. Then we can have our little side debates over, okay, what does this mean? What is this and what is that? That's fine, but let's, let's remember Jesus. Let's point to Jesus. Let's not be like the dog that's licking the finger. Let's, let's point to Jesus and, and have a sense of awe and worship. Communion is another form of worship. It's another thing that God gave us to help us to recognize Jesus' goodness. Now, just to clarify, we do have a position. We explain it in our doctoral statement. Um, with respect, again, if you have this other view, you're welcome here. We love you. We're not going to kick you out. We would, on paper, disagree with the Catholic view and the Lutheran view, and we would agree more with the uh, like Baptist and Presbyterian views. So there's four views. If you really want to go down the rabbit hole, there's like six or seven views, right? But there's all kinds of different views on what's happening here. So some people go into details about the physical nature of Jesus, his physical body and blood being in the in the communion elements. And we would say, we, we, we think they're saying too much there. They're kind of saying more than we even understand. They're, they're kind of like grasping at mysteries. So that's where we would break with some of the traditional Catholic views and Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox views. But again, we can have unity in remembering Jesus, right? So we can have those different views and still come together and say, but I'm, I'm remembering Jesus. You're remembering Jesus. We want to exalt Jesus. I need him. He's the answer. So our view would be in more, more in line with the Baptist and Presbyterian views. There's two ways of describing this. Uh, sometimes it's named after the people that first kind of got these views going in the Reformation, Zwingli and Calvin. Um, it's fun to study just because Zwingli is a fun name, right? So Zwingli and Calvin. Zwingli has more of the memorial view. That's more of the Baptist view. Calvin has the spiritual presence view. It's more of the Presbyterian view. Um, I grew up one side, and then I went to seminary the other side. So I, of course, have the hybrid view, right? <laughs> I mix them together. So here's the central command, memorial, remember me. That's the command. We all have to do that. That's like bare minimum entry level, okay? So the Baptist view, the memorial view, the Zwinglian view, that's, that's bare minimum. We got to at least say we're remembering Jesus. We're thinking on the gospel. And then I think there's something beautiful about the Presbyterian and Calvinist view that says there's a spiritual presence there, I think that's beautiful because it lines up with what we already believe about the word being preached and Jesus being worshiped in song. As we gather as God's people by faith, believing what Jesus says, the spirit is there with us, right? So I believe that the memorial view and the spiritual presence view are, are completely compatible. That's how I understand it. When I come to the table to memorialize Jesus, to remember Jesus, his spirit meets me there because I'm trusting him to show up. Just like I trust him to show up when we study the word, I say his spirit's going to meet me in the studying of his word. 
as I believe, as I listen, his spirit's there. And so that's how I, I blend those views. I think the bottom line is we're coming to the table as an expression of our faith in Jesus and our ongoing need of Jesus. It's a way really to say two things. Number one, yeah, I pledge my allegiance again to Jesus. I'm, I'm saying it's not me, it's him. And I need this real spiritual food and drink. I need Jesus to save me. I need his death. I need his sacrifice. It's an ex- outward expression of a spiritual faith. We're saying, this is what I believe about Jesus. That he is my life. It's also a way for us to be encouraged, right? Um, it's a, it's a, just another grace that Jesus offers to us. Jesus is like, I know you're going to forget me, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you friends to encourage you in the faith. You know what else? I'm going to give you my word to speak to you. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to help your heart to cry out, Abba, Father. I'm going to give you opportunities to worship me in song. I'm going to give you prayer where I'll commune with you. And I'm going to give you the Lord's table where I'll remind you just through the simple eating and drinking that I'm there for you. One of the things that people debate a lot is how often, uh, it's said in the text, as often as you do this, remember me, um, how often, right? It's hard to tell exactly, and I don't think we can really say for sure. Obviously, some theologians would. As I said, we love to do that. We love to say my, my way is the right way. Um, Passover is where it started. That was a yearly festival. The early church just almost immediately made this a central regular part of what they were doing. I would argue even every time you eat a meal, you should be remembering Jesus as your true food and drink. So we've kind of taken the, the kind of historical way of doing this of saying, man, when we gather for public worship on a weekly basis, we're going to remember Jesus through communion. Our elders, our pastors have not said it's the only way to do it. We just, we just feel like, why would we not enjoy one of the blessings he has for us? And so that's how we got to the place we are. We used to not do it every, every week, um, but we started doing it every week because we were just like, man, we're, you know, we're trying to plan our worship service. What are the biblical means that God gave us to gather and remember him in scripture? This is one of the biblical ways he gave us to do that. So that's, that's how we got into that practice. It's more of a, more of a practice than a high-minded theological commitment. It's just like, man, Jesus gave us this gift. Let's receive it. Let's remember him. Let's come to remember Jesus week after week. And so we want to encourage you in the same way to come to the table, again, not to show something about yourself. That was the divisive spirit of the Corinthians, not to impress other people, um, but to commune with your brothers and sisters in Christ by saying we all have the same need, and that's Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. And that's what we're remembering. We're coming to Jesus. Last point, this means then we're coming to the family. So what we believe about Jesus unites us with other people that believe the same things about Jesus. So we come from different backgrounds. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, ethnic unity, tribal unity in Jesus from Ephesians. A year ago, we looked at John 17, another key passage on this. We all come from different backgrounds. We have disagreements over strategy and how we're going to live our life, but we're united in. We believe that Jesus is our answer and we're going to submit to his moral will for our lives. So one little point from the previous text, and then I'll read this text on the screen, but previous text, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. That's another great rabbit trail to go down. Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 says that what we are a part of is the new covenant. And it says this is different from the old covenant. The distinction is not in the moral commands of God. The distinction is in the way we keep them. God says, what was wrong with the old covenant was not the covenant, but the people. 
So Jesus now says when we come to the table, we're remembering the new covenant. And what's the new covenant? The new covenant is that the Holy Spirit writes God's commands on our hearts. That's the distinction again. That's a whole other study we could do on Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8. But we've got the same moral commands, different rituals, right? We're no longer bound to the dress code of the Old Testament. We're no longer bound to the eating code of the Old Testament or to the temple ceremonies, but we are bound to the same moral commands. And that's a really important thing for us to hold on to because right now that's getting pressed hard in our culture. What we're being told right now on the internet is that if, if you eat shellfish, then you should not believe in any of the moral commands of the Old Testament. And I would say, no. The moral commands continue. The ceremonial commands have been set aside. That's scripturally clear. And if you have friends and you're wrestling through that, I'd love to talk to you more about that. So we come to the family. We have unity, same moral commands, same hope of salvation through Jesus. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. So what's an unworthy manner? This is not about how perfect you are, but this is contextually about what he just talked about in the previous verses. You're pushing each other out of the way and you're abusing the poor and you're showing how important you are and there's pride and division. That's the unworthy manner that he's talking about here. There could be other unworthy manners, but specifically that's that's really what he's focused on here, pushing ahead of others in pride, pushing ahead of others by dividing, coming in your name instead of the name of Jesus. One of our elders, we get together and pray every week through the prayer requests, and we were praying together this week, and one of the things we talked about is how tempted we are to pray in our name, but Jesus tells us to pray in his name. And I was particularly wrestling with that that morning. We'd had, I don't know if y'all have heard, we, we have this like magical power of destroying cars. And so we had a lot of car issues. I was just feeling extra shame about it. You know, like, Lord, I don't deserve to ask for another car. You know, like, I don't deserve to ask you to help me out. I'm in this bind because I just, you know, I just break cars and that's what I do. And um, I was like, wait, I never deserve God's favor. I forgot. We should pray in Jesus's name, not in our name. And so I want to encourage you with that in your prayer life. When you're tempted to, to approach God and with a sense of shame, to approach God through Jesus. He delights in you in Jesus. Same thing with the table. We don't come to the table because of how great we are. We come to the table because of Jesus, because Jesus loves us. So he says, examine yourself. So this is just, all right, is that what I'm doing? Is I, am I coming to the table to worship Jesus or am I coming to the table to worship self and my own flesh? Another way of thinking about this is, am I practicing a lifestyle of repentance? And we got to clarify, repentance is not penance. Those are two different things. Penance is like paying for your sins. Repentance is turning from your sins. So coming to the table in repentance and living a lifestyle of repentance, it's just every day getting up and saying, Jesus, I still need you today. I need you just like I did yesterday. And thank you that you're gracious and you love me. And I don't have to pray in my name. I don't have to approach the table in my name, but I can come in your name because you gave yourself for me. That's an ongoing lifestyle of repentance. And Martin Luther made that the first of his 95 theses. The Christian life is an entire life of repentance, turning from self, turning from sin, and turning and running to Jesus. Here's an illustration of this. I have a picture of a family hugging. This is from a photo essay of, you've all seen it, being in a military town, the soldier coming home, and this was a surprise homecoming. 
the family was doing family pictures without their dad, who was deployed. And so you've got this like frame by frame of him sneaking up behind them while they're taking their family pictures. It's just awesome. You should go Google it. Um, But then here in this picture, you see them all hugging dad. And what I want you to get from this picture is that they are closer to each other the more tightly they hold on to their father. You see that? I hope you get the connection. So often we get mixed up about like how much we're supposed to love one another and how we're supposed to care for one another. And like I said, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about tribal and ethnic division. What binds us together is our unified love for God. As we're like running for him and holding on to him, we, we can't help but be up in each other's business too, right? Like we're just going to be closer to each other. That, that's going to unify us. As we flee our past and, and run to Jesus, there's going to be a deeper unity and oneness we have there. So to get technical, you come to the table in repentance. That's part of the thing that unifies all Christians. That means it's not me, it's Jesus. We also would say the initiation rite of the Christian faith. Sometimes baptism and communion are described as ordinances, sometimes described as sacraments. But basically we would say these are just ongoing traditions, practices that Jesus gave us to remember him. And baptism is the way we enter into the Christian faith. So it's an external sign of washing. So in uh, in baptism, people are uh, washed in water in a ceremonial sense. Again, just like this isn't a full meal, baptism isn't a full bath, but it's a ceremonial bath signifying, I need Jesus to wash away my sins. So we would say you should be baptized before you come to the communion table because that's that's kind of the first step. That's like the one-time initiation. All right, I'm in the club. I'm in the family. The first grabbing hold of your heavenly father in the name of Jesus. And then we'd say the ongoing ritual is communion where we come week after week, month after month saying, yeah, I still need Jesus. I still need to to feed on him and be strengthened by his death and resurrection. Verse 29 says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I'll give directions when I come. So he gets really way down in the nitty gritty. He's like, hey, just like eat a snack before you come. If you're tempted to be so hungry that you're going to push other people out of the way to run to the communion table, then you should probably eat a better breakfast, right? Like that's what Paul is saying here. He's getting very practical. I would say it this way to us. The Jews had a, had a very strict way of preparing for the Sabbath so that their Sabbath, their day of worship and rest, of ceasing for normal activity could be completely caught up in God and who he is. And I would argue we have a lot of freedom in how we do that, right? And again, it's the thing Christians disagree on, but you should probably prepare somehow, Right? Like, let me state it in the negative. Coming hungry is not a good way to prepare. I mean, physically hungry. Come spiritually hungry. Coming tired, right? Like staying up all night, Saturday night, party until 4 a.m. Not a good way to prepare for coming to church, right? Like there are things that you can, like common sense, like, oh yeah, I'm coming in completely like unfocused and tired and hungry and I can't really focus. Like that's a, that's a good sign that you're not, you're not really ready. So Paul's just giving them really practical insights. Like come Come well-rested and come fed so you're not tempted in your flesh to push other people out of the way and be mean, right? So you can enjoy worshiping together with the saints. 
He also says, some people are getting sick and dying. This is really scary. He's like, some of you, you're being so mean, God's, God's killing you. He's like, they're getting in the way of telling a story about Jesus, so I'm just going to move them out of the way. God does that sometimes. And we're, we're the kind of church where, you know, we try to not do the fire and brimstone and threaten you every week to do the right thing. But hey, here it is. Sometimes it's in the text, right? Um, so I'm not going to add to it if it's not in the text, but here it's in the text. It's like, yeah, sometimes when you're telling the opposite message of Jesus, God's, God's going to do something to correct that. Often it's loving correction. Sometimes he just breaks us. Some of you, you're sick. Some, some of us, we're, we just get humiliated. I know God's had the kindness to do that to me many times in my life. To just break me of my flesh. I thought I was smart. I thought I had it figured out. I thought I was strong. I thought I could do anything. And he's like, no, you need me. You need the gospel. And God lovingly disciplines us and brings us back to himself. So I want you to see that he, he loves you even that much. He's not willing to let go of you. So if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. So what does that mean? Number one, discerning the body means, are you seeing Jesus is what this is really about? Back to the pointing imagery. Do you recognize that this is about Jesus? Do you discern the body? Do you come to the communion table recognizing that Jesus' sacrifice on the, sin, uh, on the cross for your sin, uh, we talk about this as kind of like a summary of everything Jesus did, his blood, his sacrifice, his death, which means his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead. All of that, do you recognize? Do you discern that? Can you see that? But that's what this is pointing to. And then secondly, we're going to get into this in the next few verses. We are the body of Christ. He's the head. We, are, we often say, we're the hands and feet of Jesus, right? We're getting into that text next week. 1 Corinthians 12, it's going to talk about we're all different parts in the body of Christ. Some of you are our nostrils in the body of Christ. Some of you are earlobes, right? I don't really know how we assign which part you are, but we're all different parts in the body of Christ and he's our head. And so we also have to discern each other, like we have to see each other. If we're so busy puffing ourselves up and, and being prideful and divisive about we're, we're doing it the best way, we're pushing others out of the way, we're not, we're not discerning his body. We need each other, Right? I need you and, and you need me and we, we need each other to be everything that God has called us to be. And so again, as, as we're united in Jesus, it can't help but have these like secondary social implications. It's gonna play itself out in how we relate as a family. We're gonna start to look like family. We're gonna love each other if we love God. Jesus says those are the two commands. Love God and love each other. Here's another practical way that Jesus talks about it. Matthew 5, he says, if you're offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is describing here is discerning brothers and sisters in Christ, body of Christ as you come to the table. So as you come to worship, if you've got a great fat financial gift to give to us, first of all, thank you. We appreciate that, right? But Jesus is telling me to tell you that we'll figure out the finances. You need to set that aside and reconcile with your brothers and sisters first. That comes first. Or another way, the New Testament talks about gifts in the next chapter, next week. If you're coming with your skills, right, you're gonna come teach kids, we love it, thank you, but we'll figure that out. You need to set that aside until you've reconciled with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are social implications, there are familial family implications to what we do here as Jesus' body.
All right, we'll, we'll wrap up here. Come to the table. That's the big command. Come to the table. Come to the table to remember Jesus. Come to the table re- recognizing that this is a kind of foretaste. Theology, we talk about the already and the not yet. Already we have Christ. Already we have hope. Already we have forgiveness. Already we have family and adoption. But we're not yet fully there. We're waiting for Jesus to wipe away every tear as it talks about Revelation and Romans 8 to make all things right. We're waiting for that day where things will be perfect. And it's described in Revelation as, as a supper, as a table. In Revelation 19, it says, Let us rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Another place in our culture that we're, we're familiar with, just like they were in the, the ancient Middle East, is the big wedding supper. He's saying, we are the bride of Christ, and there's going to be this big family supper where we're going to come together in heaven. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. When we think about where we're headed, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of all that Jesus has done for us when we come to the table, but it's also kind of an appetizer. There's, there are much better things to come. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and you came to us in Jesus and you've saved us from ourself, from our sin, and from our rebellion. I pray that as we come to the table as your people, that that would transform us, that that would encourage us, that you are the God that gave himself for us on the cross. Send us out in your love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.